Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Gavin Stops, and as ever, I am joined by Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of Profit and Loss. Lots of big news this week, Colin, where summer's definitely over. There's a, a lot happening again. Um, kick us off, one of the probably the most uh, important pieces of news that's come out this week has been that Mark Johnson has lost his appeal to have his conviction and sentence overturned in the US. Uh, you reported on this and you've been following the case very closely. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this decision this week? I think I feel the same as everyone else does that I've spoken to. That it's just a, a very sad thing. Um, I think the feeling is still that he didn't deserve to be convicted. Um, certainly doesn't deserve a jail sentence for it. There's been some misreporting, as I think there always is around these things when you get into the mainstream with some of the technicalities of foreign exchange. But yeah, there's, there's a few headlines out there saying, like, you know, how he lost his appeal against his front running case. Well, actually, the, the appeal court judges made it perfectly clear that this is not about front running. They acknowledge that there's no there was no law against front running for exchange, i.e. pre hedging. Um and also that this you know, when this took place this was a normal practice. So this is not about front running. Okay. Um so effectively what is been what he's lost his appeal on is misleading the client. Um which I think has sent quite a few shockwaves through the industry because, um, you know, I've been speaking to a couple of people in the control function, for instance, and they're saying they're getting a lot of messages from people, predominantly in the sales, who do a lot, spend a lot of their time talking to the client um, about how, you know, oh, you know, am I being explicit enough with the client about this and about that? Um, so I think, you know, that's probably the first impact is there's, real concern that um, someone can allegedly mislead the client. I mean, I, I, I probably shouldn't use the word allegedly because he's been found guilty and lost his appeal. But um, the thing that got me was they, the, the appeal court judges, there was even a contradiction to me in, in what they wrote because they said that Mark Johnson instructed Frank Cahill, the cable trader, to ramp the fix. Yet, in the document, it also says he didn't speak to Cahill by two, until 2.45, when most of the order had already been done. Um, oh, sorry, a, a good chunk of the order had already been done. Um, and he also told Cahill, we don't want this going much higher um, because uh, it was getting close to the 100-point spread that they were going to be quoting the customer anyway, so it wouldn't have been a better feel. Um, so I think there was that aspect to it. You know, he... The, the the whole thing around the fix. I mean, they also say that Cahill wasn't aware of the no ramping guarantee and just executed it as he normally would. I mean, I think there's questions there for the industry about you know, you know, we think the benchmark fix was a perfectly good mechanism, and yet the modus operandi apparently was ramping it. But Cahill wasn't aware of this, so to my mind, Johnson hasn't told him to ramp it. So. Well, how can he be found, you know, guilty of it? The other aspect is, you know, there's about him lying because Stuart Scott in London said um, the Russian central bank, I think, was selling dollars, and I think Mark Johnson said comment was the Russian central bank's always selling dollars. Well, yeah, okay, I think he was called out by a comment he made the next day saying, "Oh, we gave him the usual stuff around central banks." The fact is, we don't know for a fact whether the Russian central bank was selling it. 
with selling dollars or not. Um, but this is what's really kind of called him out. I also think, you know, there's a lot of the comments I'm getting is that Frank Cahill's evidence in the original trial was incredibly damaging to Mark Johnson um, in the fact that, you know, he used the word ramp, which is, you know, I think quite an emotive word. And you're going to be using it when you're discussing, you know, in legalese terms, using the word ramp, I think, is is, is dangerous. Yeah. And Frank Cahill did use that. Um, so uh, it's a tough one. I mean, it, it really is a tough one. Obviously, it's toughest for Mark Johnson and his family. Um, I'm Stuart Scott and HSBC senior members of staff will be going nowhere near the US or anywhere within a couple of hours flight, I would imagine. There are going to be questions here for salespeople, you know, that maybe have passed on some news they're not totally certain of. Because effectively, what they said about Johnson was he wasn't accurate enough in what he said. You know, he he needed to take more care about what he was saying to the client, which is quite a tough bar to set on historical behaviour, isn't it? Um, I mean, is that? Is that really the case? I'm just looking at the language. I mean, the language was that, that he misled them, not that he passed on some information that perhaps wasn't sufficiently clarified. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I, I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to work out where he misrepresented them materially, because he didn't make the comment about the Russian central bank selling dollars. You know, he didn't turn around and tell the client that, you know, um, there were any other market actions out there. What you could say is that what he, I mean, there, there's probably, you know, people are selling to, saying to me that Frank Hale probably wasn't managed properly during the process. He should have been given clear instructions, and I think you could probably argue that. But, again, not managing someone properly, is that grounds for a jail sentence? I'm not sure it is. Um, and, you know, and they're, they're talking about, you know, the right to control and Cam would have made a different decision had they known what's going on and it cost Cam money. Well, I don't think you can ever prove that and that it cost Cam money, but equally you can't disprove it. And this is where the weight of the, weight of the law was against him because obviously he was found guilty. So they had to find serious evidence to overturn what had already been done. Yeah, that's the legalese part of it. Um, what I would say is that, again, I've said this before, you try buying two and a quarter yards of sterling in December especially, in a one-minute window, you'll see the market move a hold it more than 80 points. You really will. Um, and I think there's a problem here. I mean, there's a problem here for the client as well. Why are they using the fix? Well, it should make people sit up and think about that. So there was a, another part of your story, though, that I was actually rather um, interested in, which was the judge's state that, that Ken was not stuck with the FX transaction once it was completed, um, sought to unwind the yeah. transaction before settlement, withhold payment, or seek immediate legal action on the ground that had been defrauded. So if, if I'm reading that right, they could have decided that on their own that they'd been defrauded and then just not yeah. paid for the transaction. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, this is the most, to me, this is the most dangerous aspect of this judgment. Um, I know we're all worried about the pre-hedging piece of it. Um, that seems to have been settled. This is the most dangerous piece to me. Um, I mean, the judge's state, but Cam was not stuck with the FX transaction once it was completed. Well, it's a spot transaction. It was. 
you know, it could have sought to unwind the transaction before settlement. Well, good luck with that one. You just bought two and a quarter yards at one fifty-seven ten, I think it was. Even if they give them the average, it was probably one fifty-six ninety. By the time you try and sell that, you're probably losing money on that trade. They're not going to do that. And then they're still going to buy the original two and a quarter yards. Withhold payment. So what we're saying is that if if a customer's unhappy with the execution, they can withhold payment. That's carnage in our market. It's a whole complete breakdown of trust and you know and process. And, and the fact is, executions do go wrong every single day, and it can have nothing to do with the executing party. You know, central banks do get involved in the market. Donald Trump does tweet. There are other customers out there actually executing business. What happens if, if in, in this case, you know, and a point I would make is that you know, nine, eight or nine other banks were in this RFP process. So eight or nine other banks knew that at some stage there would be a two and a quarter billion pound transaction. Now, HSBC were using code words, which I noticed, I noticed came up again in some of the reports. Code words are a normal way you keep, keep this from too many years. Um, but this could easily have been another another customer out there. You know, we all advise our customers, especially back then when things were a little bit looser in terms of market information. So you could easily have another bank that had quoted for the RFP talking to a client who had to buy a, quite a large amount of sterling, saying to them, well, we think something's happened with the can, with, with the transaction. We think there's going to be a big order in the market, or we are seeing a big order in the market. I recommend you buy now. That customer buys now. The market jumps higher. The executing broker, in this case HSBC, is sitting there going like, what the hell just happened? Ken doesn't like the execution because the market moves through no fault of HSBC, and Ken withholds payment. But Where does that leave our world? But to be fair, it does say that the, it could have held payment, etc., on the ground that it had been defrauded. So you can't just say, I don't like my execution. You'd have to, I presume, provide, provide some evidence you've been defrauded, not just that you've got bad execution. There's no way, in an OTC market, there's no way of doing that. Even in the exchange trading market, there's no way of doing that. You know, I mean, if if, they, if they're unhappy with the FX execution, then, you know, I think maybe legal action may have been the answer. But they didn't take legal action. And I guess an interesting question could be, will they now take legal action? I don't know. But they didn't take any legal action. They didn't see, you know, they had no problem with this. This all came about because the FSA, or so the FCA in the UK sent a bunch of transaction data to the, to the um, Department of Justice. And a lot of stuff got pulled up, you know, including this. It's, I honestly think it's a you know, very dangerous precedent. And the worry is here that this judgment now becomes a precedent for other cases. I think it's a really dangerous precedent when they turn around and say you don't have to make the payment. Um, which I, I, I obviously, you know, not in possession of a, a law degree myself, but I mean, my, my rudimentary understanding would suggest that it would become precedent. Yes. Yeah. So in that case, we now have a situation where a client can withhold payment. Um, I mean, what does that, you know, well, good luck with the credit office. I mean, you know, there's credit officers out there already have to struggle with a lot of different, you know, inputs into their decision making around whether they can advance credit. If you're suddenly looking at a client saying, actually, I didn't like that feel, I think you, I think you run the market against me, then, um, I'm not going to pay you. That's something else they've got to put into their, into their 
make into their um, thought process. And, and what you're about to ask us, where does this leave us? This leaves us with more more lawyers' bills. Sadly, yes. Although well, I shouldn't say that, really, should I? Because we've got um, our Ask the Expert session <laughs> with, with, some, with some lawyers. And if you're listening, I'm really looking forward to your session. <laughs> yeah, so so for, for um, listeners that aren't aware, at our Chicago conference um, in less than two weeks now, um, we have a session on the Tuesday the 24th. Um, it's called Ask the Experts, and it's called Navigating the Legal Minefield of Modern Day Trading. Uh, and basically, what we're going to do there is we're going to have three compliance experts on stage, and people will be able to pepper them with all the questions about you know some of the great areas we've discussed here, but, but many other things. I mean, I think there's a lot of concern people I speak to about um, you know, challenges. You talk about kind of the fine line between you know misrepresentation or just passing on inaccurate information. Um, you know, obviously the the pre-hedging, front-running debate rumbles on and on. You know, I think there's a lot of concern from people I speak to that after all this, that things that they worry that in a few years' time people are going to look back on stuff that was considered okay today and and find out that it's actually not okay anymore. That's one of the things that I hear. Um, a lot yeah. of today. Um, so I, th I think that's why, for example, I think the, the code has been a positive step just in delineating um, certain, you know, certain things that, that are and aren't okay. But I still think there's yeah. a lot of confusion in some areas. So the, the whole plan to this was just to open up um, some expertise to the floor and let people ask, you know, whatever questions they may have um, on a kind of a whole range of, of topics, rather than uh, rather than you and I just peppering people as usual. Not that we wouldn't have any questions for them, but yeah, your point. Um, I mean, and you can send me questions now, actually, if you can't make the event. And why can't you make the event? But if you can't make the event, you can send questions, you know, to Galen or myself in our regular emails or to mod at forestnetwork.net. Uh, yeah, and then you can use the, the mod at forestnetwork.net. You know, if you also if you're there but don't want to ask uh, something in public, you know, you don't have to do yeah. that. Like, oh, I'm asking for a friend, so my friend. The thirteen-year-old dating method, that's called. Yeah, yeah. My, my friend may have told some clients some things that may have found, later turned out not to be inaccurate. Uh, what would you advise, my friend? <laughs> don't ever go near the US. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out. Leave, yeah, leave home. <laughs> um, elsewhere this week, um, there was a, um, a story of yours that I was intrigued by um, about algo trading. Because we, we put out one article um, this week, which was about FX all kind of uh, highlighting how much algo trading has gone up on uh, amongst buy side clients, algo execution. Um, I, I see this kind of thing a lot where people are always talking about algos being the next growth area. But you put out an article this week kind of uh, questioning the uh, the hype, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, obviously, with my balanced and fair reporting hat on, it was, a, it was an attempt for both sides of the argument. Um, what was interesting to me, actually, was, you know, we, we, we do hear the positive side of the algo development a lot. And in the article, the people that are very positive on algos were service providers, typically. Um, so you could say there's an interest there, but it was interesting the platforms were seeing more, you know, such as FX or Bloomberg's on FX Connect. They host Algo's third party. Um, so they're seeing an increased interest. I think for me, the, 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 the query is twofold. Firstly, there's a 
definite problem we spoke about last year around um, clients using service provider algos. And, and for the ease of use, I'll say bank provider algos. Some non-bank firms do offer algos now. But there's a, there's a, there's a problem around clients using these algos on a third-party platform where the, where the bank provider doesn't have any control over what they're doing. What happens then if the client abuses market liquidity or spoofs or um, you know indulges in disruptive trading using that bank's algo? And the question is still, you know, where does the liability lie for this? And there's there's a lot of concerns about it. Well, we so I think that's one aspect. We saw a little taste of that already yeah. with the um, the the hound of Hounslow when um, yeah when there, there were. U.S. regulators were looking at, you know, the people who supplied him with the technology, whether they were, you know, in part culpable as well for yeah. for kind of the abusive behavior that that technology <clears throat> might have been used for. Yeah, and that was a guy called Jitesh Thacker. And, um, you know, he gave Navinda Sarayo, I think it is, the Hound of Houndsbow. Um, he, he created the technology for him. Um, now, he got off you know, quite rightly, I think. Um, but the thing is, you still had to go through the whole process of facing legal action from the government, um, having, you know, to prepare for a court case. There's, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of trauma there, as no doubt Mark Johnson, the cartel gentleman, and, you know, Rob Bagucci can tell you. It's, so, I, I don't see that as being fair, now, the good news probably for these providers is the U.S. legal system seems to have said, you know what, <clears throat> we cannot convict a man on those grounds. He was just providing the technology. But that is still an issue that's going around. And I think it's one – the message I'm getting from the banks is it's one they're looking at more and more in terms of, you know, we are letting people get away with, you know, abusing our, our service effectively, particularly around the issue of counter-orders. When you run two slashes against each other, one's a lot stronger than the other. Yeah. Um, it's quite ice-proofing. Um, so you've got that aspect of it. The other, the other, um, query for me that I thought was interested in this is that, um, this is a fintech issue. So generally speaking, fintechs can do this stuff cheaper than banks. So therefore, you know, the banks are, charging fees on their algos and you know some of them historically have been pretty high fees, you know, eye wateringly high in some cases. Um but the benefits have generally been there. Now the benefits have become a little harder to differentiate. There could be a bit of a price war there, so that becomes a problem. Brokerage gets crushed. That's a regular story in in our markets. Um but just more simply the fintechs can do it cheaper. Now, the one aspect I think that this argument ignores is the internalization. You know, execution is all about accessing the right liquidity and the good internalizers out there. Their, if their algos are accessing their internal books, then I think they should still have an edge and they would still be able to go forward. But there are a lot of clients out there that don't trust the internalization algos either. Yep. And this is you know, part of the broader breakdown of trust, isn't it, that we've seen in markets. So, so do you subscribe to the view? Because I, I, I heard some similar things by one person. You know, um, you know, I've heard the argument that um, 
you know, the banks love selling algos because it can, you know, make up for the loss. You know, they're not uh, making as much risk transfer anymore because they simply can't take so much risk. And that the algos are a nice, you know, juicy source of, of revenue and it's effectively risk-free, right? Because they just, you know, sell the algo and then they're not actually yeah. making the risk. Um, but this person was saying, one, they see more fintechs coming in and selling algos. But also, two, they see as technology at, at these buy-side firms becomes better, um, that uh, that they see more more and more buy side technology firms um, building their own yeah. algos. Yeah, I think there's an aspect of that, but again, that still has that issue of is that algo going to be able to access the internalized liquidity pools? Because you know, the BIS numbers are due next week, or sorry, this week for when this podcast goes out. Um, later today, actually, if you're listening to this podcast just after we publish it, I think. Um, but You'll look at the public platform numbers. It's still a relatively small piece of our puzzle. Um, the, the hefty volume still takes place behind closed doors. So I think the build your own is a bit of a problem. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a good old-fashioned problem with the um, with the algos, and that is uh, people think it's going to cost them their jobs Another, on the right? buy side and, and sell side. No, I don't think they are. I honestly don't. I mean, we had this argument with EFX, and FX employs more people, probably employed more people three years ago than it did 15 years ago, um, or 20. The thing is, I mean, I, another story we put out this week was about BNP releasing their digital execution assistant, Alex. So Siri for FX. Yeah, Siri for FX. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you can't look at anything, oh, Alex, you know, Alexa. Could we have gone somewhere else? Maybe maybe that's going to be a that could be a, an interesting one for next week's podcast. What else could they have called their digital assistant? You know, yeah, I won't say it now because I could be <laughs> I could I could turn over that invisible line. Um, but what the Alex does is effectively provide real time information to the client during the execution. Now. Um, BNP, I think, are claiming it as an industry first. I'm not sure on that one um, because I know when we wrote about this in our Digital FX Awards, we noted Alex, which was just being finalized, but JP Morgan actually has an, an execution assistant as well that does something very similar. But effectively, if you look at it, you know, for the buy side trader, what do they do now? They choose a strategy, hit the go button, and rely upon pretty slow sources of information to change the strategy if they wish. And a lot of them are using strategies that they can't change the strategy in flight. Okay. If they do with transfer, you know, they, they or they work with the bank salesperson, you know, they're getting updates, but they're not getting updates in real time, not getting good analysis. What this technology does, what Alex and the JP Morgan technology does, is it digitally produces market updates, as in there's a pocket of liquidity in dollar-yen. There's a, a central bank announcement due very soon. Um, the algo is performing better than expected, and the expected execution path is better, worse than expected. But alongside that, on the BNP, on Alex for BNP, is action buttons, as in do you want to accelerate? Do you want to decelerate? Do you want to fill rates for the whole amount? So it gives you it gives you smart buttons 
decision buttons as well as gives you the information. To me, that empowers the trader. So why would they be scared of this technology? Um, but it's human nature. We've got to get over this. And as we found with e-trading, it can take some time. So, yeah, you know, I don't think the battle's won yet for algos. I think it's going to take longer than people think. Um, and speaking of battles, um, there was some excitement this week um, in the market because we had um, Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing making a surprise bid to buy London Stock Exchange Group, which, as listeners will well know, is its own trying to buy Refinitiv. Um, an interesting story. I didn't see... We wrote an article about this, and we suggested that you know maybe someone like an ICE could come in and try and scupper the deal with a bid for LSE. But I didn't see Hong Kong exchanges and clearing uh, being really on the picture here. No, I don't. I don't think anyone did. Although I guess you know there's a big cash pool there, isn't there? Um, I I got to be honest. I think. I mean, as we record this, it's been announced. A few, a few, an hour or two earlier, that LSE is rejected the bid. Yeah. Um, so, and I think you know the expectation is Hong Kong comes out with a better bid. I, I can't see this happening, but you know. So the so what's interesting is so the the LSE uh, we just reported on it earlier today has re- the board has rejected the bid, um, and they outlined a number of the reasons why. And frankly, all their reasons why are very good ones. Um, I'll just run through yeah. them, them quickly. Uh, so the first is simply that they're focused on the Refinitiv deal, and it's a much better strategic fit for them. Like the Refinitiv deal, you can see the logic there of like matching up you know, data with the global yeah. distribution network and, and the various pieces that fit together. There are a lot of synergies, right? Uh, adding, adding FX to your... Suite of products, yeah, allowing effects of fixing yeah, yeah. Um, there's yeah. a lot that made sense. Uh, by contrast, Hong Kong exchanges and clearing, all they've really got is the equities piece. That they don't have, yeah. that they don't have a kind of a broader business. So in terms of of the strategic fit, the only thing they've really got, the only card they got up their sleeve, and they they made a big deal out of this in the proposal, right, is China, like the access to China. Yeah. The, the kind of strategic closeness, China making this kind of whole east to west, um, you know, global exchange. But as um, as the LSE points out, it already has a partnership with Shanghai Stock Exchange, which it says, you know, it's happy for that to be its kind of its preferred and direct channel to the opportunities in China. Um, another yeah. issue is, so obviously this is, it's always hard to do exchange merchants. I mean, we saw that with just fairly recently with LSE and, and Deutsche Börse Group. Um, it, it gets even harder when, um, you know, you have, uh, to be frank, China involved, right? And certainly... Yeah. certainly particularly at this moment in time. Particularly at this moment in time, right? And so the, the letter points out that Hong Kong Exchange Securities has a slightly strange... Uh, as they, they slightly dub it, unusual board structure, whereby the Hong Kong government appoints half of the exchange's board members, um, and the yeah. Hong Kong government owns, I think, 6% of the shares of the exchange. Yeah. Um, so, so that's going to make it trickier for any government um, to approve it, right? When you have yeah. a, basically a foreign authority is then, you know, appointing half the board of of your exchange. Um, and then they say that obviously the issues going on in Hong Kong now um, only further complicate the matter. So, you know, they, they, um, 
they, they rather dismiss. I mean, in the proposal, Hong Kong said that they tried to claim that the transaction would be swift and certain, which LSE says is just is, is simply not a credible claim, which is uh, certainly true. Um, and then finally, they say that. Um, that the offer just isn't good enough, right? A lot of the it was so the original offer was light on uh, light on cash and heavy on Hong Kong shares. Um, but again, they say these shares might fluctuate given what's going on there at the moment and long term. You reckon? Yeah, and also, but they highlight that you know they suggest that you know long term Hong Kong's strategic place might be under threat if certain changes happen, right? Um, and then they also say that, that, look, you're giving us a premium on what the LSE is worth now, but once the LSE and Refinitiv is combined, like, it's going to be worth substantially more. So yeah. we're not, it, we'd rather have our shareholders would be better off owning shares of those combined companies than taking a, you know, a 20% or whatever it is premium today. If they sit tight, they'll yeah. be worth a lot more. Um, which, which, to be frank, are all pretty good arguments. Now, what will be interesting is, you know, I, I think I agree with you. I think they'll come back with a better offer. But the question is, is there enough, is there an amount of money that they can dangle in front of shareholders that would make would make them, you know, do the deal? Because obviously, you know, the board yeah. can, can only go so far with this. Ultimately, it comes up to the shareholders. And obviously, and also, I think... Government. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing you look at, though, is that if they go too high with it, then it's going to smack a desperation, and then that should put share, that should be a warning to the shareholders anyway. Um, I, I honestly, I cannot see this anything, I know I view the world through spy effects terms anyway, generally speaking, but this is the equivalent of some point in the cheeky, a sneaky little bid in, hoping to get here. There's, there's, there's no logic to someone selling at this price, at this time, in this environment, to this Buyer, I can't see it. Um, yeah, the, the, you know, this is the Hong Kong government probably saying, "I tell you what, let's take some, let's show Western Hong Kong for business. Let's see if we can get this bid in." And you know, the important thing for me was it says this is subject to the affinity deal not going through. Correct. Um, so they're trying to buy it now because they know they won't be able to buy it probably post affinity merger. I I completely agree, and I think, but I think that there is a bit of desperation, and and not just from. Hong Kong mode, right? I think, and we talked about this when we analyzed the LSC Refinitiv deal, right? Which is, there's just, in general, right? There's not that many assets for these exchange groups yeah. that are big enough to actually substantially move the dial and, and, and fundamentally change their businesses that they can actually yeah. afford, right? You know, you've got those, those top tier of exchanges, you know, no one's going to buy CME, ICE, kind of Deutsche Börse, right? Um, Whereas by contrast, you'd say that perhaps LSE pre-refinitive deal is probably the 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 thing that's so big that it would change, like profoundly train, change your business if you're able to acquire it, but not so big that someone with pockets deep enough couldn't actually buy it. Um, and there's just not that yeah. many of those assets, I don't think, around there for exchange groups to hoover up. And a lot of them, um, you know, they've they've taken the equities business as far as they can take it. They've taken certain business lines as far as they can take them. Um, well, you know, they'll continue to grow, but they won't see the rapid growth they've seen in the past. So they do have to kind of diversify and look for other assets that they can kind of tack on. You know, we talk about, it's not exchanges anymore. We talk about exchange groups, right? Um, yeah. They, they need to keep adding to their groups to, to grow in a lot of cases. I think it's also the question, I mean, is a bigger exchange necessarily what we need? 
I mean, it strikes me is that we're better off probably with broader business models than we are with narrower ones. You know, you look at the exchange acquisitions over the past couple of years, they have been of OTC platforms. Um, partly, I, I totally accept your point around the lack of available assets to buy in the exchange world. But I think also it's like, yeah, you can get to a certain stage, but if you haven't got the product breadth, then what are you going to do? Yeah, where's, where's the additive here for this deal? So you stick an equities house next to an equities house with a bit of derivatives and a clean house on it. I'd, 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 I'm not quite sure what we get from this apart from a bigger exchange, a bigger exchange, not exchange group, a bigger exchange um, with two core locations, one of which is under severe pressure at this moment in time. Um, yeah, but think of all that Chinese money, Colin. Well, there's a lot of it, mate, and they are trying to diversify outside the US, I would say that. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it's an interesting one for the UK regulators as well, the UK government. And, you know, without wishing to get into that particular hellhole of chaos, um, but this would be a very unpopular move in the US. You know, former CFTC chairman Christian Carlos said exactly that yesterday. He made a point of, of stating that, that this would not be seen kindly in Washington. Um, so the UK government would have to weigh up its relationship with the US if it's going to consider this deal, if it gets to that stage. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I also wonder, um, again, not wanting to, to, to wade into that quagmire, but, but if Brexit goes ahead as it's due to on December 31st, what the attitude of the government is, I mean, is it, this is the LSE, this is... British stock exchange and, and no way are we selling it to foreigners? Or is it we promise that there's life after Europe and we're going to be global and we're going to seek new partners and expand globally, so yes, we're, we're okay with this deal? Um, you know, I, I suspect it's more likely to be the former than the latter, but I, I simply don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think they'd probably rather sell it to Hong Kong than they would to Deutsche Bus, <laughs> given the current arrangements between the UK and the EU. There were lots of snarky comments online from people being like, uh, Hong Kong should have just waited a couple of months. It would have been worth half the price. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're kind of ignoring that refinitive deal will probably be done then. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's maybe another thing as well, is that the refinitive deal has been agreed by shareholders on both sides. Um there's no need for sweeteners. It's a deal that can get done pretty easily. I don't think anyone's in the month or so since that deal was announced. I don't think anyone's come up with a significant regulatory argument, you know, that would need severe regulatory scrutiny. Um, this would. And I think the UK government is not on the best terms with the European Union. I think we can say that. But they are actually on fairly decent terms with the US administration. Um, so I'm not, I'm sure there will be a message coming down from, from the US. Um, actually it probably won't be coming down from the US, it'll probably be coming via Twitter, wouldn't it? Um, in, in, in capital letters, but I'm sure the message somehow will get to the UK like, this is not really a deal that we think it's sensible for you to be do, um, endorsing. Again, if it gets to that far, we shall see. So I think that'll be us for this week. Um, Please remember the RC experts for Forest Network Chicago will be uh, recording two podcasts that week for your enjoyment and enlightenment. Um, until then, we'll be back this time next week. So have a very good week. Thanks very much for listening.